0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the Unorthodoxy Podcast. This is another one of those episodes in which I I revisit uh, and will share a talk that I gave with some friends a while back in a coffee shop. The sound is, um, as with some of the others, not the best, but the ideas are the thing that I think they're just too fascinating not to share. So the talk is on a subject I find endlessly compelling. It's the idea of mass persuasion, how it happens, how it works. What's going on when the masses are manipulated? I think there's a lot here that is applicable to various social-political contexts. And for a change, this talk includes a few questions that were posed to me at the end of the talk, as well as a few of my responses, which I, I hope, will provoke some further thought and give you a bit of a kick. <laughs> Morning, everybody? Um, welcome to TJA.
1: There are lots and lots and lots of you. If you, um, I just want to a the if you'd like to add your name to the TGIF list, it's probably based on the website, but I can give you the website details, or you can write down my book, and it'll take a while for you to get your name on the TGIF website. If you enjoy this talk, then obviously you want to come back to more. <laughs> and if you don't, it's you really don't, okay. <laughs> it's really, um, <laughs> no. Now clearly, um, Duncan, Duncan Rayburn is a lecturer in Visual arts and media studies at, at uh, Tucky's, and clearly he, he's talking on advertising, and clearly... It's working. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm not just, yeah. The blurb is, it changed a little. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it'll, it'll be okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you, thank <laughs> you. Thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks for, for waking up at this obscene hour. I really appreciate it. Okay, so I'm going to be talking about mob gods. Context. I'm fascinated by something that is known as the critique of ideology. Uh, for example, coffee machines, no. And um, so, ideology is basically this thing that that our brains are configured, in or our minds, let's not call them brains, okay, our minds are configured in such a way that when we are confronted with a field of ideas, they appear in a kind of pre-arranged order. So there's a one philosopher called Hans-Georg Gardemer says that, that this is what he would refer to as the four structures of understanding, so when you look at something, You just go, of course, that's how it is. But nothing is the way it is. It's the way it appears to us. So the thing that I'm going to be discussing is the way that ideology appears to us, especially when we're gathered in groups or mobs. (laughs) Ta-da! Yeah. um, (laughs) So Sean is just, I don't know, for those of you that couldn't here started calling stone him. Please don't. <laughs> I, uh, I will be saying a few contentious things because I think contentious things are fun, but it's because I'm interested in the critique of ideology. I like challenging things that we take for granted, even if I don't provide you with answers. That's okay. Okay, so my, my basic structure is I'm going to be looking at what a mob is, what makes it up, how it, how it looks then I'm going to be looking at mob gods, which is my term for things that people gravitate towards, especially in order to be persuaded or manipulated. Uh, so, for example, provocative titles of talks like mob gods seem to persuade people uh, to show up. And then I want to look at, the, specifically in Christian theology, the idea that God himself is a critique of ideology. That's not the way most people would understand God, because God is, is more like the thing that kind of supports the system. But I would say that God, if you, if you really get into the biblical theology, not into Christian culture, you discover that God is actually rather subversive, and actually is constantly challenging the things that we take for granted. And that, that's sort of, especially as the Bible presents him. So, a mob. Um, These are the characteristics of the mob. The first one is, um, and I'm going, uh, let me give you a bit of context. So, I've been reading a lot of uh, a guy named Edward Bernays, who I will come back to. This guy uh, is known today as the father of PR. One of the things he did that you're all familiar with is he convinced people that the official American breakfast is eggs and bacon. It was toast and coffee, but now it's eggs and bacon. And we all, whenever you go out for breakfast, you think, I'd like eggs and bacon. Why did he do it? Because he wanted to boost bacon sales. Not enough pigs were dying. So he was just like, got to kill some more pigs, here we go. Um, and that's how it happened. So, so he, he also, at a stage, convinced uh, women specifically to smoke, because it was very non-PC for women to smoke. It was okay for men to smoke. But he convinced women to smoke, it's all manipulation, right? He, he was also involved in, uh, in convincing people that, uh, I think uh, there was one nation in particular, he got involved in the politics. So his theories are very interesting because he came up with these theories on how to persuade people based largely on the work of uh, one of the writers was Gustave Le Bon. Gustav Le Bon's writings were then very influential also to Adolf Hitler in <laughs> setting up totalitarian, a totalitarian state. So what I find interesting is, Bernays, oh, Bernays is also the guy who invented consumerism. We're all wearing very, very different clothes today, because this guy came along and said, you should wear different clothes to express yourself. And I'll get to, to how the, that mechanism works. So he, he Bernays invented consumerism, and Hitler enforced totalitarianism using the same ideas by the way, Bernays's thinking was also something that was taken up by Joseph Goebbels, who was Hitler's propaganda mass kind of minister minister of propaganda, although it was called something else minister of truth or something
1: uh,
0: which is uh, a very loose use of the word truth okay so These are the guys that I'm kind of referring to. And Le Bon says that the the first thing about a crowd is that it, it is governed by what he calls the law of mental unity. This law of mental unity means that if you walk into a place and everyone's sort of randomly aiming for something else, that's not, from a psychological perspective, a crowd. A crowd is when everyone is unified around some specific aim or goal. But what's interesting is the unity of a crowd is not unity in diversity, it's unity in uniformity. So everyone conforming to the same kind of thinking. So there are different thinkers that come along. There's a guy named Kenneth Berg who who regards persuasion to be hinged around something called identification. Everyone gathers around one thing. It's the one thing that they focus on. He also calls it consubstantiality just to irritate people. Um, (laughs) um, And then Rene Girard comes along and says this this consubstantiation is actually rooted in uh, what he would call undifferentiation which is just another way of saying uniformity. Okay, so that's the, the starting point. Of course the result of having perfect uniformity is that you get anonymity very powerful, because the person in the crowd becomes anonymous. In a number of ways, I'm going to name one. One of them is that intellectually they are reduced to the the lowest IQ, IQ is the wrong word, but you know, the lowest intelligence quotient is, is the thing that actually dominates. If you are an intellectual and you go into a crowd, you are now stupid. That's basically how a crowd works. So, so crowds are not intelligent and therefore cr- credulous, okay? So there's anonymity, it also creates a sense of immense power because in a crowd, in a mob, you can do whatever you like and you can get away with it. So this happens in things like the Arab Spring, uh, the riots in London, everyone's doing it, let's steal TVs. Why would you want to steal a TV? If you can explain that to me, I would be a much better, more enriched person, I I suspect. Okay. Or worse, I can't remember uh, the difference. So crowds are credulous. The thing that crowds need is simplicity. You cannot convince a mass of people of something that is very complex. This is fascinating from an ideological perspective, because politically, things need to be digestible. If you if you want to get people to to just accept something make sure that it is in bite-sized form. If you want to get newspapers to sell, make sure that your headline is catchy. You'll notice that Tolstoy's work doesn't do so well these days. But the Pretoria news is doing fine. And and that is is an interesting contrast. You'll notice that most uh, just from a since we're in a sort of christian setting most christians don't read the bible it's if they did they would possibly stop being christians because there's so much in it that's offensive but there is there's complexity and that's the thing that people can't navigate it's that that people can't handle so so there's credulity it means that things get dumbed down and then a fascinating thing about mobs is that they rely on vague simplicity i call it vague simplicity let's call it for now, simplicity. So very complex ideas get reduced to very simple, bite-sized formulations. So when I was a kid, for example, I, I learned that God was really mad, and this is from the sort of church setting, so God is really mad, and Jesus dies to appease the angry God. So it makes God and Jesus sort of separate, completely separate entities. And, I don't know, has anyone heard that that formulation before? That's that's the sort of simple... It's completely crazy, it also mimics the pagan structure of sacrifice, which is another story, but it's like a very complex, nuanced way of thinking around the death of Christ became this incredibly simplistic and very actually anti-Christian model of understanding what happened at the crucifixion, since Easter was recently. So there is that idea, but there is also in a political sphere something where, where people start defining themselves in very vague terms. Let's give you a fun one, Deutschland über alles, because that, that's Germany over everything. The, the, the German national anthem is positively hilarious, but um, I don't think they see it that way. <laughs> For various reasons. I know how many Germans there are in this room as well. So I think that's very funny. Uh, but not to you guys. Anyway. So, so, I, hope, I hope keep your sense of humor alive. It's the only thing that'll save me. Uh, okay. So, so but what does it mean to be pro-German? have you ever thought about when someone said proudly South African? What does that mean? There's no, What's the content of does that mean that we're in favor of corrupt government? Is that like we should all, you know, own taxis? What's the thing? Like, um, it, there's no content but the interesting thing about that as soon as you reduce something to this kind of vague simplicity you end up with polarity. So you end up with There are those who are in, and then those who are out. There are the Christians, and there are the non-Christians. There are the Muslims, and there are the non-Muslims. And then you create all these delineations, but everyone is so complex. Every single person in this room believes something slightly differently, has slightly different ideas about things. It would be very difficult to actually lump you all into one category. Even if you consider yourself a part of that category, you are also always going to be, in a sense, not part of that category. Does that make any sense, okay? But this is the thing about crowds. You don't address people in terms of their individual humanity. You address them as a mob, as a mindless, sort of unanimous, anonymous, credulous, simple mob. That's the basic structure. The thing about mobs is also that they gravitate towards authority. Now, the way we understand authority is that there is a leader, someone who is making all the decisions, and then everyone follows, right? That's that's a usual understanding of authority. So, the government says something, and we do it. The Bible says it, we do it, that settles it. That kind of, kind of like, very natural flow of things, but that is completely wrong. Um, an authority figure, in order to be an authority figure, must reflect the desires of the crowd. The leader is the person who follows the crowd the best. (laughs) So when it comes to politics, we vote for uh, certain people to be in power. The usual understanding is that they are the ones leading, but it's really not true. We're, We're the ones asking them to reflect our own opinions. Why? Because if they go against what the crowd believes, the crowd is also very irritable and goes, but you don't do what we asked you to. And the leader then reflects back, but you're living in the same way that I'm doing it. Like, I'm reflecting you people. The the leader, the authority, is the mirror image (laughs) of the mob. Um, Gustave Le Bon says that how this this whole structure of a crowd forms is through what he calls Contagion. Contagion is such a beautiful uh, metaphor. It, he sees it as a metaphor. It's like a virus, which of course gets adopted by Richard Dawkins in, in his notion of memes. So ideas spread like viruses. But Laban is not actually clear on how this happens, which makes sense. Like, Contagion, suddenly there's a mob and they all want the same thing. They want the Beatles and they start screaming. I don't that mass hysteria is part of this, of course. i
1: the band, sorry. Uh, the Beatles. <laughs> the
0: Beatles, the band, yes. Not, not, the, not the little bug. Um, okay, so we've got this, this structure of a crowd. Now, these things, we want to sort of distance ourselves from these things, but we all at some point pa- participate in the mob. You go, for example, in terms of um, simplicity, you all go to a specific space where everyone conforms to an ideological pattern, and the interesting thing about that is when you are part of that mob, you don't tell people what you actually think. You don't tell them what you believe because you might be put outside of it. And this happens, I mean, peer pressure by the way, we think peer pressure is just reserved for teenagers. Uh, No, it's, it's reserved for every single person on the planet. Uh, so, so it's something that we need to challenge. Now how does contagion spread? That's the thing that Le bon doesn't really answer. And so this is where I want to bring in the thinking of René Girard. So Girard is this fantastic anthropologist slash literary critic, and he started looking at literature and he started going, well, there are these patterns about how people behave. And if you understand these patterns, you, you can pretty much understand everything. Yeah, that's quite a big promise. I, I, I try to overpromise and under-deliver. That's the way I like it. Okay, so... It is actually... This pattern, Gerard notices, is actually also something that the Bible talks about again and again. So this is Genesis 3, famous passage. Now the serpent was craftier than any other of the uh, beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent... We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Very slight distinction there. You can eat all all of the stuff except the one that's in the the middle, and you shouldn't touch it lest you die. Uh, But the serpent said to the woman, You won't surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, a very, very familiar passage, very interesting story. But what's going on? At, okay, I'm going to start with an aside. What's so interesting is the corruption begins when the serpent ri- gets rid of metaphorical truth and reduces it to literal truth. So, all of those people who say we must take the Bible as literally true, yes. <laughs> it's a lot like what the serpent did in the garden. Interesting. Okay, so there's that, but that's, that's a total aside. Okay, the thing that I find interesting here is that Eve doesn't want to eat the fruit until the serpent comes along and says, but you do want the fruit. And why do you want the fruit? Because there is this God that you want to be like. In other words, you lack something. You are not God-like enough. Okay, so, desire there, the desire, and this is the, how contagion spreads, desire is always mediated. All desire works like this, there is always a subject, there is always a model, a mediator of some kind, there is always an object, and then there is a goal. I'm sort of modifying Gerard's theory slightly here. So there is something you want that the object is going to help you achieve, but the object is something you want only because there is a model. Someone, in other words, who you can copy. And this is a pattern that, that once you understand this, you understand desire. Two kids want the same toy. Why? Because the one kid wanted it first. Why did that kid want it first? Because the parent put it in front of them. So there's this constant interplay of desiring through the other. And this is how contagion spreads. So one person starts to desire through the other. That becomes a kind of pressure. all decision-making happens through pressure of some kind. So, I mean, there could be pressure about, like, what what you're going to do financially. But there's some kind of pressure that's going going to cause you to make that decision. Uh, And this, one of the biggest kinds of pressure is social pressure. Why? Because if you don't conform to the group, they might stone you as Sean has pointed out already. So that's, and this is basically what happens again and again and again. The interesting thing for me is that there are two things that play here in this story about the serpent and Eve. There is a sense of pride, but we're used, used to the idea of pride as thinking too much of yourself. But pride can also exist in a kind of negative form, which is to think that you are not enough. To think you are insufficient and go, and then to hold to it. Like, and and we, we think that's humility, but it's just another form of dishonesty. It's like, oh, I'm not enough. And that's exactly what the serpent does. He sets up God as a rival. That's an interesting one. So as soon as God becomes a rival, you're entering the realm of the satanic. Have you ever thought of that? Uh, probably not. And now you don't want to. Okay, so there's that. Okay, so, so God becomes a rival. And in that process, Eve goes, I'm not enough, I need to be more. How else do you think fashion sells? (laughs) Oh, I I just, I think I'll be happier if I buy that outfit. Really? You will be happier, your happiness depends on that object. And that's how consumerism works. And this is the thing, so it's pride but it's lack. It's you lack something you need to be more. And this is exactly what the mob does. Especially in, in its focus on anonymity, because it's like you are not powerful as an individual, but you can have power if you're part of the mob. You can collect, and you can gather, and you can then control things. And if you end up scapegoating someone, stoning them, or just uh, obliterating their name in the media, for example. It's okay, because you're part of the masses, you're not the one being scapegoated, so you're safe. And that's what what people actually rely on, is a kind of safety. And this is exactly what Bernays points out. This is his kind of a a nice summary of what he's doing. The ideas of his new propaganda are predicated on sound psychology, fair enough, based on enlightened self-interest. Enli- I love how he calls self-interest enlightened. I mean, every mystic in the history of humanity would go, that would be the opposite of enlightenment. But he goes, no, it's, this is enlightenment. This is, you're a better human being when you're self-interested. And then you get people like Ayn Rand who, is, who talk about the virtue of selfishness. Ayn Rand is fantastic not to read. Uh, you should just never do it. Okay, so um, as an example, so this self-interest is what guides the mob, guides us as people. Uh, I'm including myself here in this. So Will Irwin from 1911 said this. uh, This is actually one of the things that Bernays quotes. He says, We prefer to read the things we like. Our interest in the news increases in direct ratio to our familiarity with its subject, its effects on our personal concerns, and to the general importance of the persons or activities which it affects our personal, so it's our familiarity, do we know about it? If we don't know about it, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because it's not about me, it's not my personal concerns, therefore I'm not going to pay attention to it. And if it doesn't reflect my concerns about people who are important, also put it away. And this is really true, like how many of you deliberately go out and read books you don't like? You, you know ahead of time, you're like, mm, not interested in that subject. Don't see a lot of people voting up. Ah, I love books. Um, it's it's something that I have become aware of and have therefore deliberately gone out to read books that I might not agree with. It's a great way to grow uh, intellectually. Bernays, for example, I think is is trouble, <laughs> but but fascinating to read. Uh, and I think that's we we can learn a lot from things we we disagree with. <clears throat> uh, Bernays carries on, and I just I just think this is. <laughs> look at how he twists the meaning of words but this is exactly what needs to happen for the mob to agree the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society (laughs) wait we are manipulating the masses and this is democratic this is an absurd notion of democracy but it is the prevailing one Okay, so democracy: everyone has a voice, everyone is represented. Does the media represent everyone? No, it cannot. In fact, it represents the dominant ideology. That's how media works. That's how it sells. So the dominant ideology of our cult, one of them, one of them, is that we love violence. South Africans, whenever they gather, they're always talking about some kind of violence. So it can be metaphorical or symbolo- symbolic. But it's some kind of violence, and it's so interesting, and it's great to have a conversation about it. Why? Is this edifying in any way? But it's it's the dominant ideology, and so news feeds right into that. It's interesting to also, when you travel, to look at the newspapers of other nations, to look at the, the way that, for example, British newspapers hinge around politics, a very ridiculously simplified view of politics, but it's much more political than it is action oriented, violence orientated, as ours is. So Bernays, um, he, he basically says there should be this elite group, he calls this the invisible government, and their job is to engineer consent. Uh, another interesting phrase, so the engineering of consent is what this elite group does. There can be a misconception that the elite group is actually intelligent, and this is Bernese's mistake. He thinks the elite group is really leading the masses. But what I'm pointing out is that no, the masses are leading the elite group. It would be, and just as an example, I find this fascinating. There was a stage in Malema's career where he had no power, he had no money, he had no legitimate form of influence. And yet he's still here largely because a bunch of people in the media went this guy is always interesting he says these ludicrous things let's keep on paying attention to him so he had nothing that was legitimate but it was created It was his power was created by the way again his, his power works because he is reflective of a certain part of the mob okay so there's no, that uh, in certain other circles I would be stoned for just saying that. Okay, so the question that I want to ask is: How does the crowd get persuaded? Obviously, there are questions around around these sort of characteristics of the crowd. What unifies the crowd? What do they believe? What will they believe? Uh, how, how simple can we make it to make whatever we're saying believable? Um, and then, how who can be turned into a scapegoat? I'll get back to this. How can the leader embody the focus of the crowd? So. The mob gods are these things, anxiety and flattery, a very bizarre combination. If you want to persuade people, start with flattery, I'm on your side, you're such a wonderful person, but you set up in that process a kind of anxiety, have you ever noticed how difficult it is to manipulate people who are not anxious, if you are not anxious, you don't Tend to care what everyone else is doing. It's like, well, that's your thing. That's fine. Not my thing. Okay. So, non-anxiety is basically the key to not being manipulated. I'll get to how this is interesting in terms of Christianity as critique of ideology. Um, how does how do cosmetics get sold? You you want you want to be your best you, don't you? You should get some makeup. To hide your face. (laughs) You're going to (laughs) get stung. Most of the funding, by the way, just uh, just look at sciences. Okay, science is far from objective in terms of where money goes. So, uh, the two most uh, prominent, uh, most funded enterprises in science: the military and cosmetics. You would think it would be in something useful like. AIDS research or steel, which is Alison's field, by the way, uh, but it's not, it's in, it's in blowing people up because we're anxious that they're going to attack us, or it's in we're anxious about how we look, fashion, all of that sort of stuff. Okay, familiarity is an interesting one because familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. The more familiar you get with stuff, the less you pay attention to it. And uh, there are all sorts of psychological theories, one is called the intimate stranger theory which was started by uh, or uh, written about and researched by Stanley Milgram, who is also famous for doing the Milgram's experiment which you should check out because it relates very interestingly to authority. But familiarity is just this thing of the more you say something, the more you repeat it, the more you make people familiar with an idea. The less obscene and bizarre it seems, and it becomes accepted. And this happens every propaganda campaign, right from the totalitarian states right through to advertising, is all around this kind of familiarity. Just plonk the Nike logo everywhere, and people will start to think it's okay that you at one stage hypothetically actually used um, slave labor. So it's those kinds of things that create st- familiarity, stereotype, and exaggeration. It's, it links to this idea that mobs gravitate towards simplicity. So if you stereotype people, that kind of vague simplicity, you're already in the process of exaggerating something. I, I often say this: every emphasis is already an overemphasis. This, what I'm saying here, I have to. I'm going to now negate everything I'm saying.
1: <laughs> what I'm saying
0: here is not everything, it's just a tiny, tiny thing. I've read several books to be able to talk about this stuff, but I, this is just, yeah a very small portion of what we deal with. The interesting thing about this is that it naturally creates en- enmity, it creates enemies. If you want your mob to stay together, the best way to do it, and when I say best way, I'm not in any way endorsing this, but it's to create enemies. This is why in America, if you look at American history, every now and then, Something will flare up, and a new enemy will be created. So you have the witch hunts of the 50s, for example, and you have recently, they were bombed by a few people, and so suddenly Saddam Hussein and uh, Al-Qaeda and all of those, oh, that's their enemy. Now, the enemy is like a tiny, tiny group of people. It's really, really small, and possibly even insignificant. I know they did some damage, but the degree to which they... Stereotype and exaggerate distorts the way that truth is adopted. I actually want to refer to the stereotyping and exaggeration actually in terms of the uh, the bombers, the Islamic fundamentalists. It's very difficult, I know, I've tried, to read the Quran without having in your head the Islamist. Because that's the media image, so you get that. The Quran in no way legitimates that kind of violence, it doesn't. But it's so difficult to get past it because that's the image you get. It's stereotyped, it's exaggerated, and it's, it revolves around creating an enemy. Then the interesting thing about images and events become the most important thing, not ideas. Edward Snowden, how many of you know that name? How many of you know what he did? Okay, he said some fairly radical things about how the American government is literally spying on everyone. Every photo you upload to the cloud, everything you put on Facebook, they they own it. Fairly, fairly contentious stuff, I would say. But it kind of, the fascinating thing, this guy is exiled from America for treason. He will be put into prison for the rest of his life for doing what he did. And everyone's like... Oh yeah, yeah, but we get very, very huffy and puffy about statues that are being torn down. Images and events, not ideas. The same thing applies to um, the next thing, emotion and sentiment. The crowd is driven by emotion and sentiment, not reason. It's very difficult to step into a crowd and say, but you don't see the picture, it's not like that, it's like something else. But you can't convince people of anything because you're trying to use reason and not emotion and sentiment. Uh, and you know this every time you see a One Direction concert. <laughs> um, by the way, that's an interesting one, like what, one of the, cause I, like I've heard some One Direction. It, it's quite offensively bad and banal, but the, the thing that's fascinating is there's this cult around, it's a, it's a kind of religious cult that has generated. So recently one of the band members left and there had to be a suicide watch. Because young girls were cutting themselves and also threatening to kill themselves because the one band member had left. I wanted to kill myself. Uh, so the crowd is irritated. You wanted to kill yourself, young Well, You have some issues. I think some therapy would be very helpful. i about them. Yeah, and not very bright guys, by the way. Uh, when I was in the UK, because that, that's the first time I even heard of them. I, I visited there in December and I suddenly there's this hype about One Direction and on the TV there's this like brief clip where they're interviewing them. My IQ dropped 50 points. It was, it was horrendous and I decided I'd better end this. Anyway. Fascinating linked to anxiety. So I'm going to say that anxiety is a pretty fundamental part to generating persuasion, the persuasion of the mob. It is the mob God that drives a lot of things. Urgency is very strongly linked to that. Urgency is a sense of get this now and you will get an extra thing thrown in for free. (laughs) That's kind of the, the gimmick that gets used in advertising. It's very urgent. Why? Because if you think about it, for a time you might go, maybe this is not a good idea. And that's the thing, psychologically we are we are hyper persuaded by things that are immediate. We see the thing in front of us and the thing that's not there is it actually disappears. It's a bit like you know, the minute you turn your head, everything behind you is, it's gone, it doesn't exist. As far as I know it's, oh, it's still there, that's quite amazing. So Benet says this, which is I think the turning point in, and where I want to start dealing with what it means to critique this ideology. He says that the group mind does not think in the strict sense of the word, in place of thoughts it has impulses, habits and emotions. I don't agree with Bernays' impulse for writing this. Because he's saying everyone should be manipulated by this elite government, this invisible government. And in order for this invisible government to actually manipulate and persuade people, they have to have a view of the crowd as subhuman. The mob to be persuaded must be regarded even by the people of the mob as non-human. Very interesting in terms of German propaganda. A lot of it hinged around the common man, the farmer, the everyday person. But it also appealed to the kind of a kind of distortion of although not really of Nietzsche's idea of the Ubermensch. The overhuman. So the way they articulated the subhuman, we can kill our, you know, this invented enemy, the Jews, that was what the Nazis said. We can do this by making them subhuman, but in the process they became subhuman too.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Not, and that's the interesting thing about creating enemies. Um, as soon as you create an enemy, you make yourself into a, non, a non-person. You're just your violence, you're just your anger, your aggression, your impulses, all of that. So Le Bon also says, says this, The masses have never thirsted after truth. They turn aside from evidence that is not to their taste, prefer, preferring to deify error. That's why it's a mob god. It's error that gets deified. If error seduces them, whoever can supply them with illusions is easily their master or their president, hypothetically. Whoever attempts to destroy their illusions is always their victim. How did the founder of Christianity, I'm not talking about Paul, but Christ, what did he do? He showed up and he said, you people have a lot of illusions. You religious people think that by, you know, observing these commandments, you're actually good people. And you political people think you're, you're good just because you have power. What happened to him? He destroyed their illusions and became their victim. So the critique of ideology, which I think is actually best articulated in the Christian Scriptures, relates to a few things. Seeing, loving, believing there is more, which I'll get to, and and the idea of wholeness, which is very fundamental to the whole narrative of, of the Scriptures. The first thing is that Christianity brings about... A belief system that is rooted in recognition, in what I would call the rhetoric of intimacy. So you have, for example, a writer named St. Paul who writes directly to actual communities that he knows. And you have Jesus speaking to, like when he's in a mob, a woman touches his cloak and he goes, Who touched me? oh you and then he addresses the person as an individual Zacchaeus you over there in the tree come down from the tree so there's this the rhetoric of intimacy it is not about anonymity at all anonymity is actually anti-christian so next time you go and like blog using anonymous uh, name or like comment any of you that like trolling uh, that that would be kind of That would be wrong because it is not recognizing yourself as a person, but it also fails to recognize the other as a person. The The second thing is the notion of love, which is very central to the narrative of the Scriptures. Fascinatingly, people think love is unity. And it is, but it's also not. So I'm going to refer to a few stories in a very unusual light. So Genesis, you have... By the way, Genesis 1 you should read it because in the beginning there's the earth was formless and void. It starts with the earth being there. Mm -hmm. So all the six day creationists, they should actually read the Bible, I think that would really help. Uh, Because it starts with earth being there. So whatever happened before, it's not even concerned about. Big bang, cool, very fine. Okay, so earth is formless and void and there's chaos, right, there's this chaos there, the waters. And the spirit is hovering over the water, and in, and steps into the 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 scenario, and calls things out to be different. It divides things. Okay, what is the first act of love? It is to divide. Love is a rebellious act against consuming the other. Okay, so there is this division, and it says, let's separate darkness and light, and land and sea, and earth and sky, all of that stuff. Okay, so. It, it's a divisive thing. This is then mirrored in the story of the Tower of Babel. Okay, so at the Tower of Babel, everyone is going, let's make a name of ourselves. And, and in that passage in Genesis 11, it's very interesting, because you read, they said, and they said, and the people said. We the people. Who is we the people? Okay, Like, I see it's that vague simplicity, but it's also this sense of, Let's become more than what we are. We are not enough. We'd better get up there with the gods. And there's a joke in Genesis 11 that's not often noticed. But God goes down to see what they're doing. It's like, something's happening down there. don't really know what it is. So they're trying to be really impressive. And God's going, it's not that impressive. So he steps down. And what does he do? He inserts into that scenario division. And complexity, and he says, you people need to separate because as soon as you get into this mob mentality, it's trouble. It's also something that is that is mirrored then in the book of Acts, uh, in Acts two verse three. So the the coming of the Holy Spirit again, very rich symbolic language, and and divided tongues, divided tongues appeared to them and rested on each of them. It is not the Toronto blessing. Some of you will find that funny. Some of you don't know what that is. It's fine. (laughs) Okay, so it is not everyone getting into a kind of mass hysterical scenario. It is the rhetoric of intimacy. It is a a point of recognition. And this, by the way, it's kind of a fun thing. Water in the Bible is often symbolic of the mob. So, for example, you have uh, in Exodus, there's there's an ocean. There's the Red Sea. And the Israelites need to get into, like, across it, and it divides, An act of saying, let's clear this, your identity is not in this mob, it is the same act of creation, you can walk through it. The Egyptians die, maybe metaphorical or actual, we don't know, but it, they die in the mob. Why? The death is symbolic because it's interesting, because they're not interested in being individuals, they're just interested in reflecting the state. The Bible itself, by the way, is canonized debate. It is not a monolithic text. You have in in the New Testament alone a bunch of writers contesting a number of views. Why? Because it's so important not to assume that it is a consumptive worldview. I know that that's what it's become to a lot of people, but it's not that. It's supposed to be something where people can talk and disagree and search things out. The fascinating thing about Jesus' first pronouncement to a group of people in Matthew is blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. He points out where people are and he says this is fine. Where you are is okay. You do not have less access to the kingdom of heaven because you are less. So you don't have to eat any kind of fruit to become more. You don't have to appease God. God is okay. He's fine. He doesn't need you to impress him kind of made a universe one of those things just hello universe okay so it is a kind of announcement of radical inclusion as well and you'll notice a lot of the rhetoric in the new testament, in the testament is around there is rain and it falls on the good and the bad everyone's invited there's no one who is excluded even at the sort of parable of the prodigal son you have two brothers who are on opposite fence one hyper-religious one completely irreligious and they're both invited to the party. So there's this uh, language of radical inclusion. And then, because of this, and this is where it gets so, so interesting, so much of the discussion around becoming part of the mob is hinged around not being enough on your own, not being enough in terms of whatever it is. Um, and and so there's a sense of non-wholeness. The scriptural narrative is one of Wholeness. Wholeness is always present. Wholeness is always there. You don't have to defend your ego. So much of the crowd is there to go support ego structures. It's like, this is what you believe about yourself. This is what you need to become. This is how you will be successful. So there are a lot of successful people who are emotionally and spiritually completely dead. There's no real life there because they haven't learned that they're actually whole. And that maybe the motivation for being successful should be something completely different. And it's fascinating to me that Jesus pronounces this abundance, but he says it must, what follows a sense of wholeness is self denial. So you don't lack anything, but you should give up your sense of, give up your identity, give up this desire to hold everything together. That, I think, is a very good place to end and open for questions. It was a, sudden stop. <laughs> it was a very sudden stop because I, I didn't have time to actually finish the talk. <laughs> if, you ha- if you have questions, now would be a, a good time. Doctor with everything that you said now, this this to me was probably one of the best that I've heard from you because it's so much insight into it to make things. But when we talk about the, the Christian life and you know as people interpret acts the guys, it's always community, community, community. Yeah. Now I'm saying community stroke mob.
1: That is so great. Okay.
0: So what what does Jesus say about community? When two or three are gathered. Look at it. No one notices this, but it's two or three. How can you be intimate in a massive, massive community where you are not recognized? Make a churchianity, that whole sort of thing. It's completely satanic. No, I'm, I'm joking. I'm going to get stoned. <laughs> I'm just joking. I just like messing with you. Okay, so there's this, bit, but maybe it is. I don't know. Um, so there is this thing of like, get into small groups where people recognize who you are. Don't just blend. It's an interesting use of language that no one notices. Two or three in the church always gets assumed, To be the system that the the whole you know the system it's not so that's what I'm saying so because how can how can you create recognition in that space? I don't know you will have to analyze
1: maybe the maps around uh, Cain because they didn't have to actually fit them so there must be uh, but it's interesting in that in those
0: moments because uh, I'm going to give you a different reading on that miracle and then I'm going to like comment on it so that one of the the readings of the miracles is that everyone had food with them but they were too nervous to share it (laughs) and when the food was passed around they went okay I can take my food out now and in that act there's also the disciples going into the among the people and then giving them meeting them in small bits speaking to them if you're carrying a basket to a, a ton of people you're going to be seeing their faces so it's not just about distance. There's a really uh, a funny scene in the life of Brian, which is, is one of the better gospel texts. Um, <laughs> so Jesus is preaching. If you've not seen it, it's okay. But anyway, like... <laughs> so, so Jesus is preaching and to this massive crowd. And then the camera pans back, and it goes further back and further back. And you just see this massive people. And then someone at the back goes blessed are the (laughs) cheesemakers. And it's quite an interesting perspective because there's...
1: A cheesemaker. We have a
0: cheesemaker, so that's fine. Um, So there's this perspective of as soon as you get... And I, I love that as a symbol for what the mob does. As soon as you have this massive crowd, you can't hear the message properly. So I think it's... I'm not saying that all crowds are bad and they're so evil. I'm saying be very careful of Of crowds. And be be very, very careful of your own position in that crowd because it's very easy to be taken up by that sentiment and that sort of uh, emotional stance and things. There There are lots of questions. I don't know where. Yes? Just the other angle. I think the scripture also emphasizes the importance of relationships. Mm -hmm. And and I think when you talk about crowd or community, I think the idea of of relationships. Yeah. See God through others. Thank you. Yeah, that's exactly it. What's interesting to me is how how loving God uh, in in Christian communities is often separated from loving people, and and the Jewish mind is uh, if you want to understand the Jewish mind, you just have to see Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, But (laughs) there's this this both- andness about it. On the one hand. But on the other hand, it's also this. On the one hand, it is loving God. But on the other hand, it is also loving people. It's not, it's not a sort of uh, negative dialectic. Great. Okay, so let's let's look. At, he also says, "Have the mind of Christ." Okay, so that um, which is interesting because one of the things Jesus said is, "You should love your enemies." Do you agree with your enemies? No, they're they're exactly the people you don't agree with. The issue is, and and that's exactly why I mentioned this notion of love being being a divisive act, a, a, an act of recognizing that things are different, that people are different. I think I think it, it's not necessarily have the same mind become clones, I call that cloniality for fun. Um, okay, so it's not become clones, it's, it's, you will have disagreements, and sometimes the disagreements get very heated. A lot of, I mean like there are tons of those recorded in the New Testament. Paul bashing Peter for eating the wrong stuff, you know, or for eating the right stuff but in the wrong way. Anyway, so there's this kind of very complex discourse around around what's happening, but it's fine if there is love present. Um, that doesn't answer your question completely, but it should you know food for thought I think. Again <laughs> okay. uh,
1: maybe maybe it's rather that, that you know you know you're identifying specific um, problematic behaviour of crowds, but maybe could, I'm asking maybe maybe is it that the crowd itself, or the mob itself, is actually just a form of power, and it can be abusive or it can be good. I mean, I'm just thinking. I mean, again, we have we had an image of the bride of Christ, not the brides of Christ, but the bride of Christ as a big group. Yeah. So, so there is a sense in which God does deal with us in
0: big groups. Yeah, okay, yes, but...
1: There is that, but But I'm wondering, I'm wondering if it's not that that big group is power. It has a power in itself, and it can be in its right place, and then it is good and well and, and, yeah. and fulfilling and homecoming, but if it's in its wrong place, it is distorted and damaging and, and cruel and scapegoat
0: I'm going to say something that is more radical than that. I think all power is evil, if it is held.
1: Mm,
0: okay. So... Um, And you notice this uh, in Christian theology, God is sovereign and so gives up His sovereignty. So there's a constant, even in the the Trinitarian theology, you have this notion of no one person in the Trinity holds the power. Uh, John 17, the high priestly prayer, has a lot of that sort of thing where Mm -hmm. there's the, the Father did this and then He gives to the Son. The Son gives to the Spirit. There's this kind of, which is... Again, it's rich symbolic language, which is talking about deferring power. The the first text in history to deal with humility as power giving up its place. And this is kind of cool. is Philippians 2. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself taking on the form of the servant, um, giving up even his life to, to death on the cross. So there's that kind of process of, yes, 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 you can hold power, but power corrupts full stop. If you hold it, it's going to it's going to do some kind of denigrating work. Okay, so
1: how is the church supposed to? Like Christ. <laughs> how is it supposed to? Be? No, 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 I do Christ, but how, yep. how is the church supposed
0: to? How, how is the community of Christ? What is, the church? what is this church? Because yeah. like, that's my yeah. point. It's like, okay, so let, let me talk about this thing. As soon as you have a mob, you have mm. deferred belief. You don't need to believe on your... You don't have to believe yourself. You can believe... You can let the structure believe on your behalf. So people often will defer, like the church did this, the church did that. No, well specific people in the church did that or that that other thing. So I want to go like our usual thing: the government did this. I'm going. Well, what what are you doing? So there is a natural tendency in human beings at the lowest level of maturity to depend on systems and to go. It's the system's responsibility. but it's not well. That's the problem. It's not. It's handing over power that doesn't exist in that mob. It's like, like, well, yeah. It's a false kind of sense of self. So it's all about, built around lack and anxiety. But Jesus's message is take responsibility. The, the whole notion of metanoia, repentance, is a bad translation for that. But but metanoia, as as in renewing your mind, that's a that's a very key process that involves recognizing that you have the power to see where you are, to be seen by yourself and by others, I guess. Yeah. Judy? Um, just going back to the concept of the Bride of Christ and
1: concept
0: is one of the <laughs> I just love the, you know, like, if you know okay, so uh, the answer to, the secular answer to G- Germany's totalitarian regime was individualism. But you'll notice, <coughs> and he said, so the, the thing is, individualism is the ultimate mob mentality. Um, because you need someone else to tell you that you're an individual. <laughs> you're an individual like everybody else. I kind of uh, I get that philosophy from The Incredibles, which is pretty good. Um, yeah. So individualism is the end of individuality. But I think that that yeah that kind of fixation on on unity, the way you are unified, is to an individual, but it's always a negotiated tension. You are an individual only in so far as you're not going to step too far out of the crowd and be scapegoated or rejected, all of that stuff. So, yeah, very good thing. Um, One of the fascinating things about consumerism is it does create a kind of mobile mob. So, people gather around, say for example, hipster culture. All the guys have beards. Okay, so this is like, let's all have beards. And then that, that's going to change, like at some point there will be some other fashion, that, and that's what fashion does, it sort of disperses. So, so consumerism can be a violent culture in a, in a sense, it is the, the negation of the individual, but it tends to create temporary groups and so the violence never really escalates. It's, it's just not a very good solution to, to the mob mentality I find. I just, I just want to say- yes.
1: But it's a little bit... Uh, so it's like now, it is okay to have a Yeah. but only if they become bad, it's a mob, and then this applies to them. It, I'm, it's going, I'm saying, is, uh, as
0: soon as there is a lack of recognition, a lack of face-to-face contact with human beings, okay. then you have a problem. It doesn't have to degenerate into severe violence for it to be a problem. I think when people are not seen for who they are and don't have a voice of their own, they're already in trouble. But um, they the they're
1: not healthy
0: communities. There are definite, and that's why I'm saying healthy communities are ones where two or three or twelve in, are gathered where you can see, I've been able to name a number of you, I know most of you. And that's quite cool. It's a small, it's a small gathering. There's still enough time. And there's still enough time for conversation and you can chat to me afterwards. It becomes worrying to me when it's this sort of hype. There's this massive culture around it. I don't know. That's kind of... of, I know I haven't solved this, but I hope that I've given you enough that's provocative and interesting to go and be bewildered for the rest of the day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much.